Hello and welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight, an investigative podcast for anyone whose role relies on finding crucial evidence, patterns and information. I'm Lily Kennett and I'm Juliet Young. We're both investigative partners at Shillings and this week we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Antonia Kimball from the Art Loss Register. Hi Antonia. Good evening ladies, very, very happy to be here tonight. Antonia, we're really keen to have you come and talk to us today um, because one of the things that Juliet and I have been discussing over the last couple of weeks is data sets uh, or sources of information that are available to the public but not necessarily openly searchable, for example, you know, just online. Um, Juliet and I were talking about this. There's lots of examples of things that we've thought about, um, like shipping databases, which are really useful on uh, asset traces. Um, Juliet, what were some of the other ones we came up with? Um, the Well, the National Archives, mm. um, the um, Audit Bureau of Circulation, um, sort of government files, freedom of information requests. We're really interested in talking about those data sets that are are there, are searchable, are fantastic sources of information, but might not be widely known or, or might require a subscription or, or some kind of access. And and this made us think of our good friend Antonia and the Art Loss Register. So Antonia, can you tell us a little bit about the register? The Art Loss Register is, and I, I'm not sure if my chairman has coined this term or whether it's actually publicly known, but there's various different types of databases just on that theme. And um, so you've got open databases, which is available online where people can, you know, easily search and access information. Um, and then you've got closed databases like police databases, which isn't available to anyone other than the law enforcement agencies that um, have access to it. And then the Art Loss Register, we have what's called a managed database, which means people can submit searches of artworks that they want to buy or they want to sell. Um, and they can do that through the website uh, of the Art Loss Register. And we would then run a search against the Art Loss Register stolen art database on their behalf um, and come back to them with the results. So either it's listed or it's not listed. Um, and if it's listed, it's the subject of a claim. And the reason we haven't made it open is because um, you know individuals could run a check against the database and knowing that an item is stolen in order to see if it's listed and then you you may not have a proper audit trail and things like that and have a way of, of, of any recourse for a victim of crime so that's why we manage the process um, but that's one of the reasons why we manage the process and the other is because the databases can be quite complicated to search and you need to know how to search for, for the information uh, that's listed so that might be through an artist search or it might be a description or a keyword um, and knowing how to operate the system is obviously another reason why we, we have it as a managed database. So hopefully that sort of explains a bit of the context of the types of databases and, and where we fit in that. So you talked a little bit about people using it having been the the victims of a crime or, or possibly being uh, in a dispute. Can you tell us a little bit more about the circumstances under which people come to you at the register? Well, the Alice Register has been operating for about 30 years. And the initial sort of idea was, you know, some of the major auction houses, you know, Sotheby's, Christie's, etc. They were having their, um, uh, they, they were, you know, having auctions, uh, public auctions. 
and their clients were having items stolen and they would then contact the auction house and say, uh, could you look out for my George III Bureau? And, um, you know, unless Christie's or Sotheby's had a very long memory uh, or the pieces were very unique and rare, they wouldn't always remember that, um, that that piece had been stolen. So the Art Loss Register was um, created with the art trade in mind and also the backing of the insurance industry. Um, who also wanted to identify things that they paid out on claims for. So, um, so it really started off with registering uh, stolen art. And then in the 90s, uh, after the Washington Conference, uh, we started registering Nazi looted art or art that was the subject of a forced sale. Um, so those are historic claims. And then I think over the years, we've because the Art Loss Register's sort of service is known and respected within the art market and we issue certificates on artworks that we check uh, through our website, um, which have become kind of current, current, common currency in the art market. Um, we um, are actually now used for lots of different reasons and those can be for fraud investigations, for the, you know, for law enforcement or for, um, you know, someone who's been the subject of a fraud where, you know, stolen credit cards have been used uh, but also disputes over ownership of art. And that can be on a transactional level between two parties who claim that they own the piece or one owes the other money on a transaction and also divorce. So it's actually kind of morphed into a much broader sort of spectrum of, of information on the database than just theft and loss, basically. And, and Antonio, what sort of people approach you to kind of run a search on the day? Is it insurers or is it lawyers or, you know, law enforcement? It's it's all of those. And um, actually just sort of preparing for, for our chat today, um, I was just looking back on some historical cases. And one of the biggest cases that we worked on, which involved about £30 million worth of art, was a search by an insurance for an underwriter who was asked to insure some shipping of some paintings from uh, Russia to Switzerland. And they ran a search because they were suspicious and they were all listed on the Art Loss Register database as stolen, having been stolen in the late 1970s. Then, of course, we do receive searches from law enforcement who things are going through customs or things are, um, you know, an officer goes to a, to a you know, house and uh, as a result of an investigation and they seize property, they can run a check against the Art Loss Register. But the primary users of the database in terms of searching are really private individuals, uh, sorry, not not so much private individuals, it's more the, the art trade themselves and that's the biggest sort of uh, area, the auction houses, major auction houses, uh, regional and international and the um, museums and um, also uh, dealers and, and, and galleries. Art is, you know, yes, a cultural product, yes, something of great beauty, but it's also an asset, uh, and it's a tangible asset. It's an asset that can be picked up uh, and moved around, and this is this is certainly something that you know we see from our perspective in terms of uh, asset tracing and and asset recovery. So, I mean, is that something that you you'd say you've seen a lot more of in the last couple of years? You know the importance of the register in terms of asset recovery? Art goes hand in hand with our other, other assets. You know, people, if they are using art as collateral 
for money laundering or if they are wanting to um, or if if someone is is wanting to trace assets you know art can be a great opportunity to as a sort of route to discover the other assets and obviously we don't get involved in the tracing of the other assets directly unless it's for example to recover damages for a client's um, costs on recovering a stolen artwork we might go after that for example and then we would use a you know an organization like yours to help um, discover what assets that individual has and uh, try and secure those as a res you know for for um for our client who who's the victim of, of the original theft so i see for example we had one where we were trying to um where we uh had a court order to recover i think it's three and a half million pounds worth of, of assets from this individual who'd um knowingly fenced some stolen artworks worth about 30 million and he actually was a, a um he's now sadly deceased but was a, a lawyer in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it was uh, it was an interesting case and took you know quite some time, maybe over 30 years from the original theft to the assets being finally recovered. So the paintings were the initial trigger for that and then some compensation for the victim as a result of the, the ordeal that he had to go through. But um, just in answer to your question, more specifically, you know, that, that it could have been a, another type of investigation where, you know, other assets were perhaps um, obtained fraudulently. Uh, you know, we have sometimes, um, you know, uh, banks where individuals have gone beyond their position and bought assets, assets for them personally with company money. Um, and also that can be a route to tracking other assets as well. So... I think something that we that goes hand in hand definitely it's really interesting to kind of consider that for each of these asset classes there are different databases and we've come across you know shipping databases um and other sort of asset registers um for example aircraft registration it's interesting when you're conducting an asset trace to consider the different places you might look for specific assets anyone who knows lily and i knows that we're sort of very passionate about digging around in places where you might find unique information and these kind of archives are definitely of interest to investigators and, and people looking for assets. I think something that's so valuable about the Art Loss Register is that, you know, as you mentioned at the outset, it's it's curated because I think, am I right in thinking that um, for some time some of the records uh, on, on some of these artworks were, were kept quite manually and, you know, I, I think I remember speaking to you previously and you saying that some of these could even be falsified, you know, so someone who wanted to establish a provenance um, that wasn't wasn't the true one might, under some circumstances, sort of slip a card into a more manual register. Is that? Yes, I think, well, I, um, I've had various sort of different incarnations in what I do, and one of them uh, I've worked for the Art Loss Register on, you know, for 10 years. And then again, this is my second incarnation back at the Art Loss Register. And I also had a period of working as a special constable, which was a volunteer police officer. Um, and I, not to take the conversation somewhere totally different, but um, having spent a month in, in police training at the company expense uh, at my boss's um, suggestion, I then got involved in art and antiques criminal investigations. And one of the cases that we worked on 
um, involved a forger and in order to create provenance to verify the um, the artworks that he was trying to pass off as authentic um, some of which ended up in some notable collections and um, he would put cards and documents and information into uh, archives in order to create a false provenance so the resources that are available I and mean, I think the likelihood of that happening is very is very rare but it it does it has happened and it is possible to happen so I think sometimes when you can go into an archive and you can access a box of historical sales um, you know particularly at the Courthold Institute of Art I'm not saying that that has ever happened to them but you know and someone slips in a, a false sale into the cards <laughs> you know or an exhibition that maybe didn't exist um, you know that then that can become part of the provenance and part of the history of the work and it's then read as the truth. And actually, funny enough, we did have a case involving a an old master, Dutch old master painting, which was catalogued as being two different versions. And one that had a bee, a bumblebee, and the other one that didn't have a bumblebee. And actually through our research, I mean this wasn't this wasn't falsified provenance, but I'm just saying how documented history can be the deemed to be the truth. And actually we were able to, to determine that there was only ever one version and this was the stolen one and actually the bee had been painted out or painted in I can't remember which way around it was but um, so actually scrutinizing the information that you have on face value is sometimes important as well. That's really interesting because often you know when we're dealing with investigations Lily and I are dealing with information that's been planted online but actually you know, you've just highlighted how information can be planted physically as well yeah. to create a provenance. I think, um, you know, I think one of the other examples that I gave you before, and I think this is um, kind of interesting, and it's less of an area that I get involved in because I don't deal with, because we have different departments. We have historical, um, the restitution department for Nazi looted art and for sales, and then, which is a whole research team, and then we have um, an antiquities team uh, who specialise in that area because that's a particularly specialist area. And um, sometimes the provenance, for example, on those pieces does have documentation, but where the date and the country that's named on the, on the document, the country hadn't been created at that point. So, you know, I mean, it's a rather foolish <laughs> choice of information to put on a document, perhaps in hindsight, but, you know, that's all part of the attempt at the scam. It's really interesting because you need to bring, you know, not not just the sort of attention to detail and the knowledge of the art world, but your own investigative mindset to, you know, as you say, the letters, the information, the geographies, or, or even the images that you're confronted with. And I think we all sort of play a slightly different part because, you know, my colleague James is always saying to me, you're being an investigator again, as I got my policeman's hat on. You know, and, and and he's a lawyer, so and a litigator, so he's always, uh, you know, approaches it from that perspective. And then we've got a former OCBC police officer from the French um, Cultural Office uh, who who has his particular slant on things. So it's quite it's quite an interesting set of of opinions and views and approaches to the investigation on a on a claim or or even a search of an artwork. I mean, for example, we had a something happening this week where 
Um, I don't know if you know uh, what a catalog resume is, but this is this is a publication, just an open source publication by an individual, you know, normally an academic or someone who knows of a particular artwork, uh, who knows an artist and um, documents their artworks. And some are very reliable and some are very much not reliable. And knowing the the person that's published it, just to your point earlier, did they have a vested interest in having an artwork feature in it? And is that artwork genuine and authentic as a consequence of that? And that sometimes that needs to be looked at. And uh, we had an artwork that was featured in the publication as stolen. Um, but we can't work out who the claimant is. So that's not an unusual way around uh, to have that documented where it's documented as stolen and we don't know who the claimant is. Normally we know who the claimant is, but we don't know where the artwork is. So, um, you know, information is, is uh, has to, as you say, has to be looked at and, un and understood. And sometimes you have get answers and sometimes you really can't. And on this case, I, I think we're probably not going to get an answer, but um, worth the investigation along the way. If anyone listening feels that, you know, anyone's either uh, conducting an asset trace or is, is in a piece of litigation, and they think, actually, this, this could be relevant um, for my case or for my work. Can you just talk us through the process of, of accessing the information and sort of what kind of, um, what kind of approach is needed, how you vet it, etc.? How, how does the engagement work? Um, so if you, if, you know, one of the listeners is, for example, wanting to seek a particular piece uh, or have knowledge if a piece is 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 offered in the market because we um, uh, offer due diligence service to the art trade and that can be public sales and private sales and I think we're probably one of the most unique placed organizations at the art loss register where we have we do see the private and the, the public sales on both sides um, and there are obviously databases that you can look up historical art sales for auctions, but not private sales. If, for example, you're wanting, you know, you're going through a divorce or your client's going through a divorce and they want to know that their partner's not going to move the Medigliani from their house in the south of France, um, then you can register your interest in the work on the database. And there's various documents you might need to provide, um, maybe a divorce settlement or... Um, or some kind of you know documentation that proves that you are entitled to have knowledge of this work or or entitled to this work or 50/50 split if it's sold or whatever the situation is um, um, or if you're someone who's going to business with someone else and you're going to buy an asset together with them and you want to know um, if that artwork is sold or you're a lender for example a bank and you're lending money against an artwork and you, the collateral remains with the um, with the owner then uh, you know you want to alert if it comes up on the market. So you can go via the website artloss.com to register the artwork, um, and uh, we will maintain the registration uh, until the item's located, and then we will let you know. Um, and then we, depending on the situation, we would either charge a, a fee on locating it, or there may be an upfront fixed fee for registering it and then no location fee, depending on the circumstances. But the, the work stay on the database until such time as they're removed, basically. And, and Antonio, are there things that you look for when kind of vetting the provenance of an item? Like, what are the sort of 
telltales or you know are there any kind of red flags that sort of you know somebody listening to this could look out for for themselves yeah that's a it's a good question and um (laughs) i think people um and i think you know we're all advisors really in a specialist area you know you at shillings and and me at the artist register and i think obviously seeking professional advice is, is a good thing to do particularly around a transaction if you're going to buy an artwork um just to sort of talk more broadly to that you know it depends jurisdiction is a massive consideration not only where the art, artwork is being sold and, and the circumstances in which it's being sold need to be considered and the implications around that but also in the provenance as you say where the artwork's been and a is it is it genuinely true what's what the provenance site is is given but also considerations around you know where it's been in terms of which countries it's been through and has it been sold in those countries and could it be sold in those countries and those are all things to to definitely to be considered and i think if something's uh come up for sale for example at a regional sale in in a european country maybe like france then you know with no provenance and then suddenly it's being sold for a lot more with um you know with this with this provenance but nothing else then then there are definitely red flags with that because you know why has it been sold for a lower value previously was it misattributed um and if so who sold it you know you probably wouldn't necessarily know ever know that but why was it so undervalued and i think there are certain sort of red flags particularly with regards to antiquities they need to have certain provenances covered covered has needs to have arrived in, in in particular countries by a certain date otherwise um there is potential to a claim and then you know also gaps in the war provenance as well is something we're always looking at um quite very rigorously to see if the um 1930 1939 to 1945 sort of, well 1933 to 1945 period is you know if there is a well-documented provenance and if there's any red flag names in there that may cause a problem for any buyer when you say there may be potential for a claim do you mean uh, if, if it's not sort of in in a particular jurisdiction by a particular date do you mean because there'd be a risk of a sovereign making a claim yeah exactly like a you know an artwork of cultural heritage um or where laws were introduced on cultural heritage items where you know an artwork has to have provenance before a certain date otherwise and quite often you will find provenance that just squeaks in just before and you think well the 19th sort of 75 or whatever and you think well that's very convenient that it happened to have a provenance like, you know, a year or two before the date that it's supposed to. So um, so those can be sort of things that we look at and question um, mm. <laughs> the sort of less scrupulous uh, trade members sometimes <laughs> have some quite curious provenance. So, Antonia, when you receive images of certain items, you know, what what, is, what can you do to sort of verify that they're genuine based on those photographs that you receive, especially now, you know, we're currently in lockdown. So it's, it's difficult probably to sort of, you know, inspect items 
physically so you must be relying on you know images and documents to a large degree I think the vast majority of what we do is actually electronic irrespective of lockdown I mean I think if we needed to authenticate a work to see if it was genuinely the piece that was stolen and it was a genuine say impressionist you know piece or an old master then we'd obviously physically get someone to physically inspect it but the vast majority of what we do is through images in terms of what you know when you've um viewed photographs of a certain artifact is that have you ever sort of with your investigator's hat on looked at a photograph and thought actually you know there's something in that photograph that doesn't look right well I as you know my investigator's hat is always on but I um you know one of my colleagues I remember being in the office and he he said Antonio come and look at this and I went over to his desk and he said do you think this work and it was this extraordinary, I mean, you, you know, very, very rare and highly valuable Assyrian relief. And um, he said, this is supposed to be in Turkey. And I had a look at it and I and he said, I just doesn't something just doesn't seem right. And we zoomed in on the image and had a look. And I'm pretty sure I said to him, I think that that might be a Victorian sash window. <laughs> <laughs> and then we we had a look through the window as closely as we could because it wasn't it was a good photo but not excellent and um in the background were sort of yellow lines and I'm sure that's a London street and uh, sure enough it actually was in London and the the person who'd uh, run the search against the database was um had had not told us the truth about the location of the artwork um but it's you know a museum piece. So I, mean, I think it was only really a matter of time before it would, they would have been found out anyway because it would have tried to end up in some major collection. So We, we had something um, similar where we received photographs and videos of, of an item and um, we actually had our sort of cyber colleagues um, retru- you know, extract the metadata and then we were able to sort of pull that out and map the location of the, the photographs and videos on Google Earth. Um, which helped us to sort of corroborate a story. I mean, obviously the metadata could have been edited, but, but given the sort of volumes of, of, of artefacts, of photographs and videos that we were looking at, um, and the fact that it did sort of corroborate the story, um, you know, it, 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 it was really helpful to kind of s- support that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting that sometimes it's the content of the photo or it's the metadata of the photo that can be really instructive in terms of helping you to kind of draw a conclusion about a certain item. We, we know where we've received the registration of a loss, particularly, you know, I, we also work on watch thefts as well and uh, stolen watches and it's a huge area. Um, although, I mean, in terms of, you know, very aggressive robberies and, and nasty thefts and, um, you know, where a work where a watch has been, um, we've received information that it was bought and sold on a particular date. And I just wasn't really too sure whether that was actually true or not. So I, um, I got us to look, someone to look at the metadata to see if the, um, if the photograph of that watch was taken after they said the transaction occurred. Um, and unfortunately, the metadata we couldn't trace sufficient metadata but it, it's something that we have looked into and I think we probably should look into 
a bit more thoroughly and find a route for that because I like the fact that you triangulate triangulated the location of where the photograph was taken as well because that sounds like something right up my street. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a great sort of multi-stage process because there's the witness interview, the sort of tell us the story of this, and then you you get to see what stacks up, which is always one of a really effective way to uh, approach an investigation. Definitely, it's so fascinating, Antonia, to hear about this you know, aspect of the um, the art industry and, you know, also as an investigator, all the angles and all the aspects of, of, of working around the art and antiquities industry. Um, it's, it's been fascinating to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Antonia. What, what a great guest to have. That was fascinating. And I love the way she said that, like us, she's always got her investigator's hat on. She, she sees some incredible cases. Definitely. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And um, please leave us a review. Be kind. Um, and send us any ideas that you have or any questions that you would like us to answer. Yeah, any, anything you want the two of us to go to work on, to talk about on this podcast please do send us it, uh, send it in to us. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. We'll see you here next time. Bye.